Welcome to the Philosophy of Now podcast. In this podcast, we try to meet and speak with personalities that we think are influential, inspirational, and can provide guidance from their life lessons, actions, and goals. And mainly, we try to look at their take on today's times and today's generation. These conversations hopefully make us all think. Think in a direction of introspection, to better ourselves, to improve our character. And that's in fact the whole point of Roots itself. For the creators, and hopefully the listeners, to reach an ideal of trying to better our lives, realize our utmost potential, consciously. So without further ado, here is our first episode. Before we start our first episode for this podcast, I want to note that this interview had to be done over the phone because of the COVID-19 pandemic that we're all facing. We weren't able to meet the guest in person in New York City. And though the audio quality may not be perfect as a result, I can promise you that the interview and the experience meeting the special guest was amazing and very insightful. Our guest today is the head minister or spiritual leader at the Vedanta Society of New York since 2017. He was also the assistant minister at the Vedanta Society of South California for 13 months. The Vedanta Societies are part of the Ramakrishna Mission or Mutt, founded by Swami Vivekananda, who was one of the first Hindu spiritual leaders to come to the West and spread the thoughts and philosophy of Vedanta. Becoming a sannyasi in 2004 from the Ramakrishna Mission in Mutt, he has also become very popular for his many speeches and lectures on the different Indian and Hindu scriptures. He's also become known as the YouTube Swami for many, for his many popular speeches at events and universities. We have with us the one and only Swami Sarvapriyananda. Thank you for being able to converse with us today. Thank you. So to start, um, how did you really get an interest to become a monk or lead a spiritual life? Where did that come from? The place I grew up in, Bhuvaneshwar, that's on the eastern coast of India. Mm -hmm. um, so our house was pretty close to an ashram of the Ramakrishna mission. And my parents were devoted to the Ramakrishna order. Um, both were initiated and they had and so I grew up with lots of books on Vedanta, on Swami Vivekananda in the house, and I liked reading, I guess. And so I became interested. And we also believe there is a there is an element of samskara, you know, the tendencies we are born with. Uh, mm -hmm. So I guess I was a kind of a um, precautious spiritual seeker. Many kids are in some sense. A lot of kids grow out of it, but um, uh, some do remain with their initial spiritual quest. So that, that's what I was interested. And when I read about that God can actually be realized and uh, the purpose of human life is to realize God, you know, the whole um, idea of a spiritual quest, that the life or a spiritual seeking. So that was one. Um, I guess early on, I decided that that's what my life was going to be. Yes. What age did you really come across that? So because I was, it was 
early in my um, school, school days so i can't uh, i can't zero in on a particular day or um, time for that but um i mean i was i mean uh, the way i remember it the further back i go there always was ramakrishna vivekananda in my life and uh, the ashram mm-hmm. and the monks and uh, i guess by the time i was uh, 11 or 12 years old I'd, i was beginning to read these books which were in the house and uh, um becoming interested in it mm-hmm. were there any other spiritual leaders or thinkers that influenced you as well that weren't necessarily part of the ramkrishna mission well i did read some of uh, aurobindo and i liked the buddha of course um mm-hmm. mahatma gandhi uh, but i was always um, more impersonal than personal Mm-hmm. um it, the person was not particularly important for me and the person is just another person you know no matter how great and you can just derive inspiration from that person but uh it, it these ideas the philosophy behind it that's what appealed to me it's something that i can realize and find out for myself and i believe you became a monk pretty young but before you did did you hesitate you know that it's a normal age for monks in the ramakrishna order you finish your okay. school education i mean your college education by the i guess by the time you're 23 24 that's when most people join and most most of the monks they join between the ages of say 22 to 28 i would guess mm-hmm. so i was um just 23 or 24 when i joined so i guess that's pretty normal i was just sort of waiting to finish my education and then become a monk i say so there was always the idea that after i'm done with school i'm going to go right into becoming a monk or did you ever consider doing something else yes uh, i mean becoming a spiritual seeker being a spiritual seeker that sort of i sort of grew into that uh, becoming mm-hmm. a monk was a decision uh, when i began to understand what monks were and that you could actually lead a life of spiritual seeking and inquiry uh, in the philosophy that i liked which was vedanta and yoga so and of course the ramakrishna mission it was always an influence because the monastery was closed by my parents were close grandparents were close to the ashram and uh, i knew the monks so uh, that was a decision i took somewhere around the time i guess i was my early teens um maybe 14 or 15 years old and but i did wait to finish education I waited about 6 7 years more mm-hmm. my education was over but of course i was a kid so it was something that i barely sort of i mean i sort of dared you know to uh, barely dared to hope that it would be true that that i would actually become a monk it seemed so much beyond my capacities or like like dreaming you know uh so of course i i i i desperately hoped that i would be able to become a monk uh but i didn't know whether it would really come out true because there were so few monks around and it was so much so different from what all my friends and my cousins wanted and so on. um so okay. it's not that i was absolutely clear that yes here's the college degree and now i go and become a monk but that's what i wanted and not only in monkhood you know but in spirituality as a whole you know leading a spiritual life leading a faith-based life did you ever wonder am i going the right way did you ever fear that or were you always confident that 
you know, this is this is the leap of faith or this is the thing that convinces me and that's where, you know, that's the way I'm going to go. Um, no, not really. I've been lucky that way because from my, uh, I always wanted this from my childhood and I was lucky enough to do what I wanted to do. And whether I'm going the right way, yes, uh, I was lucky there too because um, when I joined the order and the initial period is crucial because those who do drop out, many people, uh, those who do, do drop out, do drop out at the uh, early stages within the first few weeks or months maybe when they might have come in an emotional rush, but they suddenly feel this is not for me or I can't do it. And then they drop out. Right. But and and that period, whenever I thought about it, I always felt that it, everything was confirming my initial decision that I am on the right path. I remember a little kid in the school which run by our order where I became a monk. I was a novice and this little kid who was maybe nine or 10 years old, he asked me that, what do you think? Have you done the right thing? Don't you miss your parents, your home, your home? I mean, he was sort of thinking about himself, I guess. And I said, uh, yes and no. Every day that passes, yes, I think I've done the right thing because I feel this is the right path. And no, because uh, I always feel like I could do better, you know, in this path, be a better mm-hmm. monk, be a better, you know, study more deeply, pray more, uh, be more disciplined, things like that. Yeah. Right. On another note, um, you know, thinking about the times that we're kind of living in with the coronavirus pandemic hitting us, one of the thoughts that really comes across my mind, and I, first of all, do acknowledge the fact that a lot of people are suffering, you know, there's people dying and there's people going through hell-like conditions right now, and it's terrible. But there is a sense of a silver lining in this, and that is that we're all given a moment to contemplate, to introspect, to be with ourselves. Um, And that all comes with this, whether it be a lockdown or whether it be social distancing, all of us just being at home right now, alone or in isolation. We are given that opportunity to do that introspection, to do that contemplation, to do that um, meditation. Do you feel the same way? What are your thoughts on that? You know, what, what were your, what I do you entirely, know? entirely. And you see, this is, this is unprecedented what is happening. I'm sure it did happen um, once in a while, you know, in earlier generations when they faced uh, war on a wide scale or natural disasters or, for example, the Spanish flu and all. So similar things have happened and worse things have happened uh, occasionally in history. So people have faced that. But uh, it's unprecedented because in today's age, we are living a kind of uh, a very privileged life, I would say, um, uh, with our necessities taken care of and this hyper-connected society and and hyper-busy society uh, where uh, you are engaged in work and entertainment and socializing and the days go by in a world. Um, But there is really no major break or reset. Although that's inevitable in life, nature will force you to do it one day or the, or the other. One day we all have to get old and have other generations uh, in a march ahead. And one day we will, all of us will get more or less sick. One day we will, all of us, we will have to face death. So death, loneliness, um, illness, um, old age, these are eternal problems. And uh, 
today and they are always there uh, though in today's society we have discovered a lot of innovative ways of uh, turning our face away from those problems mm-hmm. so this is a kind of a reset where whether you like it or not you are forced to you know like stand down for a while um and that can only be good internally yeah, it it can help if you do it consciously if you do it um, uh, you know with awareness and positivity it can only add to our uh, inner richness but the chances are that people will rebel against it you know not give uh, give it a chance to to be restful and to turn in words and rather trying to engage themselves with um uh, endless netflix and internet <laughs> browsing or uh, sure now there's the yeah and the connectivity is there so you could always keep in touch with people over the net you're not really isolated in a monk cell or or a prison or something like that uh, but yes this is, this is a good opportunity at the very least to be by yourself physically apart um to get some reading done which you are always hoped for but you never got around to it or just sit quietly for a few minutes at a time and piggybacking off that i also think this is a time for us to kind of look back uh in in how far how we really come you know whether it be economically or politically or socially or you know especially spiritually we're looking we have this opportunity to look inward and look back and see that are there things that we need to change about society are there habits that i need to change about uh myself as well as the world uh whether it be the food we consume or the um our abuse of nature or my own character and my own flaws i think we have that opportunity now um what what are your thoughts on that at least i'm Sorry. learning i'm not sure this either. is uh, i mean i i would take like to take back a little bit of what i said earlier i mm-hmm. said it has happened again and again in human history yes it has and no it has not because there was never that time or a society like ours especially in the advanced countries of the uh, of the world today which are uh, thanks to the net hyper connected more or less prosperous um with long spans life spans um and the huge amounts of choice open to us you could never think of a time when the when the supermarket shelves would run out or uh, amazon would be unable to deliver to you because they have uh, enormous wait wait periods now so we suddenly faced with that uh, from uh, that kind of a society which never really existed earlier uh suddenly faced with deprivation and solitude and uh, forced kind of confinement so uh, right. it can be salutary it, one can turn inwards from my vedantic perspective um an exercise which would it would be interesting to carry out is that uh, right now it has happened so fast the changes the social distancing and uh, the fear of contagion and uh, and the scarcity is in, uh, uh, in in our stores and all of that um and the uncertainties it has happened so suddenly that it has a dream like quality um uh, so one thing would be to sit quietly and meditate on how much this world we are in- inhabiting right now this society right now new york right now for example is so surreal and dream like and uh, then wait for some time over the next 2 or 3 weeks what will happen surely is 
we will begin to get, as human beings, we will get, begin to get used to it. And this will become a kind of a new normal. And then what you do is look back upon the life we had one month ago, our usual the normal world, so-called normal world, which we had till recently. When you, after a month, when you look back at that, that world will seem dreamlike to you then suddenly, as if, mm. as if it was a story you lived in. And when you put these two together, you notice that what Vedanta says, that the, the life in the world, it's actually an appearance in consciousness, that you are that reality in which what you imagine to be your, your life, our lives, they are actually like dreams. They are like appearances and disappearances. And there is a truth, and the truth lies within you, not in the world outside, which is so dreamlike. It, it's, uh, it can be a very vivid experience. Hmm. And yeah, like you said, I mean, this is a very nightmare type of scenario, something that we only see in dystopian, you know, novels and films. And it kind of, I mean, another thing that we kind of notice is that temporary feel of life that everything is fleeting. And just like this moment in the history of Earth and the history of time is just another blimp. It's just another fleeting moment, just like our wealth accumulation, just like our everything else that we've just accumulated before Corona hit. Um, correct. And right. I would, this is an, we can always think about those such things philosophically and people have thought about it, but it's also an opportunity to experience it firsthand in our lives mm. right now. It does not come so easily. And it, right. it, it may come to individual people or to small groups of people, um, who are faced with troubles, but for the world as a whole, this is unprecedented. So we are having that kind of an experience right now. It's surreal. It's dreamlike. And what I was saying is a month later, uh, we will begin to get used to it. This will become the new normal uh, as long as it persists. And then our past life will start seeming like, like a dream. And so then you begin to realize how much of our so-called normality is just a construct in our minds. Now, the the result of that will be a calmness, uh, an inwardness, a kind of steadiness in the face of change. But do you think that's always the case, though? Meaning, you know, in a case like this, in a scenario like this, we would feel a sense of calmness and um, serenity? Or do you think people can actually end up panicking? Well, Vivekananda, some, um, you know, asked one of his disciples said, to, to meditate on death. And the disciple said, but won't that just make me depressed? And Vivekananda thought for a while and he said, initially that might happen, but afterwards you'll get, gain a tremendous sense of freedom and freedom from fear and you get, get uh, joy and strength. And how would that happen? You see, right now we are so invested in... Uh, uh, our so-called normal normality of life, that my life must be just so. My favorite brand should be available from Amazon or from my nearby store, and my particular kind of food that I like should be available, and my my schedule as I'm planning it, you know, in my weekly schedule and monthly schedule, everything should go well, and things were working out that way. And we were so invested in that, and even small disturbances in that uh, would make us unhappy or anxious or annoyed. Now the whole thing has been sort of kicked out of the door. You know, the whole thing is matched. Um, mm -hmm. And we find we're still going on. 
And after some time, we are even beginning to get used to this and adapting and changing, which then leads us when our world is returned to us, which almost inevitably will happen over the next few months. We'll again be set back to something like what we had two weeks ago. When it's returned to us, we'll, we will not clutch onto it with so much desperation. Uh, mm. We will not be so small or petty anymore. I think we will have more uh, tolerance, more forbearance, uh, more introspection, uh, more, uh, I would say, a certain detached serenity regarding, I mean, we wouldn't be so anxious or driven. Mm-hmm. You know, like small things triggering people to kill themselves or go into fits of depression, things like that. No. We have seen through much worse and we're coming out all right on the other side. So, so it's all right. We can do it. Um, speaking of people, I guess, moving towards, hopefully, being able to move towards a more calm and selfless and spiritual lifestyle after all this ends, which I hope is soon. Um, going off that, really, we see the word spirituality really becoming a catchphrase, just like something like yoga is. Um, and we've talked about that before. What do you think? Um, what do you think it means to really live a spiritual life? What is a commit? What does commitment to spirituality mean to you? Um, it's it's living a life in your thought, word, and deed, which is in consonance with your spiritual goal, doing things which support that goal, and not doing anything which goes against that goal. Uh, I am actually poorly paraphrasing uh, something that a monk said in Hindi on the bank of the Ganga uh, in Rishikesh. Uh, he's, uh, so he said, that is a sadhaka. Sadhaka is a spiritual seeker. Mm-hmm. Once in a while you do go to a meditation retreat or listen to some soothing music or use an app for calming your mind, that everybody does. That that does not make anybody a, a spiritual seeker. An actual spiritual seeker will be first and foremost a spiritual seeker, and everything else will be around, arranged around that. So what will be, if, if a person thinks of himself or herself as a spiritual seeker, that's really good, and it's it's wonderful that they do that. All I would say is that do it more and more. Um, that should not be, spirituality should not be one thing uh, in my list of things, uh, things that I do or the things I define myself as. It should be central. I am spiritual. I am a spiritual seeker. And then whatever I am, a monk or a family person, a person who is holding a career or like an independent entrepreneur or student, whatever you are, all that is arranged around my spiritual seeking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how so how do you think someone arranges that though? So life would be rearranged that way. Uh, so for example, it, it it wouldn't be like God is my goal and money is also my goal. Not that way. Money is still there in life. If you are if you're not a monk, you're in the world outside. You do need to earn earn money and you need to take care of yourself. But all of those are for God. Let me put it this way: when we use God for our material welfare. God will make me rich. God will keep me safe. God will uh, help me to find a parking spot and whatnot. And so in that case, we are using God for our life. But that's, that's not bad, but that's very a very conventional kind of religion. 
the uh, what I call real spirituality is when um, my life is for God. See, one is God for my life. Like God is one more convenience, which I, uh, which is, helps me in leading a better life. And right. there's nothing wrong with that. That's also a very good way of living. But what I call real spirituality, that was your question, is where life is for God. So um, for mm-hmm. that, you don't have to be a monk, but you definitely have to be a little bit monk-like. Right. 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 Um, you know, it really comes from that idea of being good people, right? And which is, I, I know, I agree. I think that's definitely something that's great. But, you know, whether it be I don't harm someone or, you know, I meditate every day or, you know, I, I go to yoga class, you know, three times a week and that makes me a spiritual person. That's something that, you know, I I really wonder, is that really something that defines you as a spiritual person? Yes, and that's better than not being that. That's better than right, not right, being right. that. But since you asked, what do, you, what do I consider real spirituality to be? I would put it at one, uh, one grade above that, where it's not just being good, not just being ethical, not just being mindful, all of that. But plus, all of that is not for just a better way of living, a wiser way of living, but actually for spiritual seeking, for God realization. If God mm-hmm. exists, God can be experienced. You need not use the God talk. You can use the talk of enlightenment or nirvana or whatever you call it. And that's the purpose of life. Right. 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 Um, why is Vedanta the way for you? Vedanta, obviously, for those who don't know, is basically the philosophy or the essence of the Vedas. Why is that the philosophy that you follow? What about it attracted you? Well, um, there are a number of things. One thing, of course, is I sort of grew into it. Uh, any modern scholar would say, hey, wait a minute, weren't your parents in Vedanta? So that sort of explains <laughs> it. I mean, it does in certain, in certain ways, but... I also um, look around more and more. I, I read in all of the traditions and as much as I can. And I visited, um, you know, uh, Christians and Buddhists and uh, other sects of Hinduism. So the kind of Vedanta and the kind of Vedanta that I follow is uh, Advaita Vedanta, but as taught by Swami Vivekananda. You know, Vivekananda, if you want to classify him, that uh, Sri Ramakrishna and Vivekananda would be... Uh, a 19th century Hindu reform movement. So right. that's, but that's just one form because Hinduism is vast. It's, it's uh, spectacularly diverse. Absolutely. Now yeah. this, yeah, this appeals to me for multiple reasons. One is it's, uh, it's very rational. But let me put it this way. Uh, Ken Wilbur said, uh, religions of the world in the 21st century need to do three things if they're, if they're going to attract uh, you know, young people in the 21st century. Three things. One is uh, religion need to stop fighting against each other. They need to be a source, need to stop being a source of conflict and violence. And that is very important in, in our teachings, that all religions are true. There is absolutely no uh, need to, you know, convert other people from other paths into your own path or absolutely no need for any kind of violence. Um, uh, you know, our exclusiveness, you know, that my path is right and you're all wrong and I need to tell you how wrong you are. None of that. Absolutely not. 
all paths are real and not true and they can all lead to enlightenment uh, so respect for all religions and the founders of the religions that is one thing and ken wilber says that that's absolutely one thing that religions of the world need to do second thing he says is that uh, religions need to stop contradicting science and reason so religions are ancient creatures you know so they have huge belief systems with all sorts of stuff accumulated through centuries and millennia mm-hmm. and um, because of tradition the weight of traditions some people tend to hold on to that as if that were true now what is already well known and established in mainstream science that religion should not contradict and then it runs see then it becomes a question of belief versus reason and right. belief is basically going to lose unless it becomes fundamentalist so uh, it should never be a conflict between reason and belief your beliefs should be supported by reason now advaita vedanta here is is wonderful in that way i feel advaita vedanta and certain forms of buddhism are probably the only forms of religion in the world which um a non religious person a skeptic a scientist also might be comfortable with and that's why there's this great interest in buddhism and secondarily in advaita too uh, in in the modern uh, world in the scientific world too so that's another thing that i mm-hmm. i i would want my faith to be in consonance with my intellect and that means in consonance with it doesn't have to be materialistic it doesn't have to be reductionist you don't have to destroy religion that's scientism that's a scientific world view materialistic world view right but don't directly contradict what is well known say for example about uh, evolution about um, you know there any number of superstitions especially in hinduism too about the world about uh, human beings so um rationality and science absolutely this that's something that i would not compromise on if there is anything in my religion which contradicts established science then i would rather let go of that part of my religion and accept the scientific perspective rather than you know dig uh, in my heels and hold on to that so that's the second thing and uh do you think vedanta does that pretty seamlessly pretty seamlessly vedanta means here i mean advaita vedanta okay um so uh, and there there are certain philosophical reasons why advaita vedanta is able to do that seamlessly it's uh, it's also something that it has in common with uh, certain forms of buddhism by which i mean um the madhyamaka buddhism the vigyanavada buddhism which is yeah. let's say the philosophical foundations of tibetan buddhism um or other forms of buddhism also so um advaita can do that i mean what i am trying to actually what i'm uh, indicating is this idea of two levels of truth that um, there's an absolute non-dual brahman which is existence consciousness bliss and the world is its appearance the level of at the level of appearance till the advent of modern science it was fine to use sankhyan cosmology and uh, uh, old belief systems but modern science our evolution and physics and chemistry they work better they are better explanations since in its any case is explaining the world the realm of appearance advaita vedanta in principle has no problem with it um, it's, it's it's all right you can use it to explain this world mm-hmm. um 
Yeah, I have spoken about this um, recently. Brian Green, this famous cosmologist, yeah, who has yeah. done, pro- yeah, but he came in his new book. He came to launch his new book at Harvard. His book is Until the End of Time: Mind and Consciousness and Meaning, or something like Mind, Matter, and Meaning in there. So he, in fact, uh, he mentioned that his elder brother actually became a monk in the ISKCON, and he used to oh, have wow. these debates. Yeah, he used to have this. So he was <laughs> happy to see me. He didn't know I was a Ramakrishna Mission monk, but anyway, same kind of dress. Mm-hmm. It was a huge audience; about 400 people turned up. And afterwards, he was saying, uh, when when I got my copy of his book signed, um, he mentioned this that his brother was a monk, and it's there in the book too. A um, couple of things he mentions is that he says that see what Vedanta says, he says Vedas. So what Vedas say is not science. But I see a poetic echo of what the latest theories of science are saying. A poetic echo, that's the word he uses. Wow. So in principle, it seems to be the same. But of course, in detail, not at all, because um, they were not doing science anyway. And even the terminology would be different, right? Yeah, but general principles, yes. Right. Um, And the second thing he said was, he, oh, it's there in the book. He once asked the Dalai Lama, he asked, can Buddhism contribute something to science? And the Dalai Lama said, about the external world, I don't think so. There we will look to you and your colleagues to tell us more about it. But about consciousness, yes, I think Buddhism has something serious to contribute. And that's what Mm -hmm. I think about consciousness studies, which is a very important area of science today. I think Advaita Vedanta has a lot to contribute. Yeah, um, without without going too deeply into it, of course, but what would you say Vedanta has to contribute to this discussion? You know, speaking of fitting into that puzzle, what can it contribute? Uh, right. Um, and, and all this is something that I'm saying now. It's when I was a um, teenager getting ready to join the order, I, just, I hadn't thought of these things. But <laughs> yes, in principle, it seemed that the uh, order was liberal, they were, they were not saying anything that really struck me as unacceptable and, uh, um, you know, out of uh, tune with the times. And that has just been confirmed over the years. So anyway, the question was, what, what can it contribute to the field of consciousness studies? Uh, I'll refer you to, just look up Vedanta Providence. I gave a talk, Atman, a philosophical meditation. I gave a talk there last week where I made three points about what Advaita Vedanta can do in the 21st century. And so the the second point was this, what Advaita Vedanta can contribute to consciousness studies. But very quickly, if you are asking me, the big problem in consciousness studies today is what's called the hard problem of consciousness. And Advaita Vedanta, in common with other Indian philosophies like Sankhya or uh, Yoga or uh, certain Buddhist philosophical schools, uh, can tell us something very important about what consciousness is. That's what they are asking, and there's a huge amount of confusion and conflict. So, um, because of the the prestige and power of physical science, the entire effort in consciousness studies after Descartes has been to reduce mind into matter, to put it very simply. Mm-hmm. Um, the, desperate to show that I mean, Descartes left it there, mind and matter. He said, uh, if I inquire within myself, I find that I am a thinking being, that I think, therefore I exist, the cogito or right. 
I'm, and he says, I'm a thinking being and I have a body. It's not that I'm a body and a mind. I am a mind with a body. But he left it at that, a mind-matter dualism. Two kinds of things in this universe. Minds are not matter. And that was not, that is absolutely not acceptable to modern science because um, physics seems to show that matter can explain everything. And therefore, mind must be matter of some kind. And that was the situation until the um, you know present emergence of modern neuroscience and new imaging technologies, which enables us to study the brain in greater depth. So there's a new interest in trying to understand how does the brain produce the mind. So mm-hmm. it was taken for granted that it is the brain, and there's nothing more than it, more to it than that. Just we don't know how. What has happened in the last 20 years is, with all the investigation, we are nowhere closer to understanding how the brain can produce the mind. Most people, most scientists take it for granted that yes, it's the brain which is doing it. But how? There are not even any good theories. All the theories are there, they're contending with each other. No, none of them seem to be making a dent into the problem. And there are some philosophers like David Chalmers in NYU, uh, who has coined the term, the hard problem of consciousness. And he says that we are making a huge mistake here. Uh, there is just no way that a physical system, even a living physical system, like the brain and nervous system, can actually produce an internal subjective state, which is our conscious state, our thoughts, feelings, emotions. So he calls it the hard problem of consciousness. And his solution is very Vedantic. He says, we may have to accept that consciousness is an all-pervading reality. And uh, uh, he calls it, it's an old theory, panpsychism. Just like there is matter and space and energy um, all over this universe, there's also consciousness all over the universe. You just encounter it where there are sophisticated brains and nervous systems. Consciousness can work through that. And who's saying this? He is absolutely not coming from any Eastern philosophy. He absolutely disowns any kind of contact with any Eastern philosophy. But um, entirely from the perspective of Western philosophy, analytic philosophy, philosophy of mind, and modern neuroscience, he's coming to this conclusion. Of course, there's a big pushback against him. Um, so there's this philosopher, Galen Strassen. He is in the University of Texas in Austin. He wrote a very nice, uh, he, he has picked up this issue of the hard problem of consciousness and he wrote a very scathing essay, The Silliest Hypothesis. And he starts mm-hmm. off by saying that even the most fanciful claims of the religions of the world, they sound very reasonable compared to the silliest hypothesis of our time, that we are not conscious, we are just matter. Um, and then he goes on to examine why we have come to this sorry state of affairs where eminent scientists and philosophers are claiming that, oh, it's just a brain, or, oh, it's just, you know, behavior. There is no such thing as an internal state, or or there is no such thing, even no such thing as a mind, or even consciousness. This is incredible, because, and it's literally ridiculous, because uh, um, if it was something sophisticated, esoteric, like, like super strings or black holes, things which we entirely are dependent on a small group of experts to tell us about. What they tell us would become the standard uh, scientific understanding. But consciousness is not like that. We have direct evidence of consciousness. All of us are conscious. Now, if a scientist comes and tells you it's just the brain firing and there's no such thing as an internal feeling of pain or joy or thought, or you would say that's ridiculous. I'm feeling it all the time. Right. Um, so... 
so he, that this he calls it the silliest hypothesis and vedanta can come in and tell you something like the david chalmers panpsychism that uh, consciousness is a fundamental reality and goes on further to something that would be even more stunning that consciousness is the fundamental reality it's in fact matter which is problematic anyway so that's one thing that uh, vedanta can contribute another thing which i've given in that talk in providence that atman philosophical meditation point number 2 we will see the second contribution if you ask what can it actually contribute to the you know consciousness studies today which area um this distinction between consciousness and the mind see right now in consciousness studies i'm taking a course in the philosophy of mind at harvard mm-hmm. and so we are reading all the standard papers in the field i see immediately that there is an enormous contribution that uh, not just advaita vedanta but indian philosophies in general can make right away and that is the distinction between mind and consciousness in all these papers they mix up the two but in advaita vedanta tells you in a thought there are two things there is the thought itself which is a function of the mind and there is an awareness of that thought which is consciousness the two okay. together are what you are calling thought um and this distinction was well understood in ancient india almost every school of philosophy made a distinction between say self and mind right um none of them said that the mind is you and some of them identified the self with consciousness some did not so this is one area where i think where vedanta really appealed to me that it, it was it was rational and scientific at least i did not find um say for example today's well known atheists whether it's Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, all their criticism and attack on religion, almost none of it you know, stands or is directed against or stands against something like Vedanta or the Tibetan Buddhism. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's important. Usually the Abrahamic ones. It's usually Abrahamic. Or it will stand against theistic Indian religions also. It will yeah. stand against, um, um, say, Vaishnavism or Shaivism also. The dualistic religions. Right. So... um so that was the second thing that was important to me was it should not be against science that's what i mean i didn't know what ken, ken bilber had said and that i read recently but it matches my mindset at that time mm-hmm. the third thing which ken bilber has said is modern the religions in 21st century need to be at least at par with uh, you know what is ethics and values today so race and gender and power um what the big issues which with which people are struggling with and a big issues in ethics today religions generally have held a very conservative uh, a, a lot of a very orthodox or, or backward um, you know position on these issues so for young persons today that's a strict no no if religions are homophobic if religions make it a point to say that god is a man and that men and women are not equal in some sense only men can do this and women can't do that that becomes very difficult for a young person today um to accept a religion to really believe in that sort of thing so that should not be there and there i found the uh, i i found advaita vedanta as taught and practiced by the ramakrishna order very congenial I mean, it's mm-hmm. liberal it affirms the truth of all religions it's all accepting yeah yeah it's a uh, i mean uh, it's universal that way anybody or who can is welcome to follow this uh, ideology 
universal in the sense that discovering the same uh, truth in all the other religions also, so that it's accepting of all other religions. I mean, it's only recently I realized that universalism has a different meaning in the West, um, where Christianity claims to be universal vis-a-vis Judaism. Everybody is not a Jew or can't become a Jew, but you're all invited to become Christian, and therefore it's universal. But it's not universal, mm-hmm. it's not at all universal in that sense. I mean, to say that you are welcome to come to my way of thought, and that's universal, but of course everything else is wrong. Well, it's not universal. It's, it's a kind of brand of fanaticism. And you can see what enormous harm it has done over the centuries. Uh, I mean, the wars and the violence and the hatred, and the, in the, all in the name of universalism. Right. Um, yeah, sure. yeah, I mean, that's where I would say something like Judaism is far better. Then you can say that we are Jews and we keep to our ways. We are not going to become a Jew and we are not going to accept your path, but that's it. You to your own and we to ours. That at least does no harm. But it, this is productive of enormous harm. Here I have, I have come and um, this is the only way to God and uh, say Jesus is the only way to God and you are welcome to become a Christian. And you must become a Christian because your path is wrong or it's outdated or it's false. And if you don't become a Christian, we'll put all kinds of pressures on you until you do become a Christian. And that also has to be according to my particular faith or my particular church. That leads to violence and division and hatred. Um, So Ken Wilbert put it, he said these three three things. One, that um, violence must cease. Religions must cease violence and cease being a source of hatred and violence. And second, it must be in tune with science. And third, uh, it must be in tune with modern values. And all three I find today are uh, uncomfortable, at least. Right. And I'm perfectly comfortable. Recently, we were discussing at Harvard. I mean, we learned two new terms which I really like. One is from Professor Clooney. He, um, he uses the terms. He uses the term imperfect belonging. So one is the choice that I am spiritual, but I don't like organized religion, so I won't belong to any religion. I'm going to be spiritual, but not religious. Well, you can do that, or I don't really like that. I What I like is what Professor Clooney said. He said, you can belong to a tradition as far as it's broadly acceptable to you, and it can be an imperfect belonging. There could be things in the tradition which you are not particularly interested in, or even you don't like. There could be things that you like and you are, which are not part of the tradition. That imperfect belonging is fine. It's it's pretty authentic, actually. If the tradition is liberal enough to let you be like that, that's good enough. The right. second term I learned was uh, Professor Anantanand Rambachan, who is a major teacher of Hinduism in the U.S. He's from St. Olaf's College. He's written this book, A Hindu Theology of Liberation, you know, applying um, Hinduism to important issues today like racism and abortion and uh, climate change and things like that and uh, gender yeah it's an important book it's published by SUNY um, State University of New York Hindu theory of uh, theology of liberation he used the term he said I've often been criticized for my criticism of of uh, of my own religion but I always say that I have I mean they are master don't I love my religion I said I do I have a critical love of my tradition it is a very beautiful term. Mm-hmm. So if you combine these two, critical love of your tradition with an imperfect belonging, um, if somebody asks that, 
wouldn't be a uncritical love of a tradition and a perfect belonging isn't that better no that's not better because that's uh, that's not authentic that uh, doesn't allow you to grow and doesn't Something allow the yourself either yeah right if you are honest and authentic you will grow right and uh, the tradition also can then grow and evolve and change under pressure from its, its own constituents right speaking of religious and political differences causing havoc and causing bloodshed what are your thoughts on india's political climate today where the current party has been accused of causing um racism and discrimination in the name of hindutva i know there... it's coming for criticism I, I, but i'm not going to talk about that i saw a lot of that in at harvard a lot of the students i mean not a lot a few of the students and they are all mostly indian students either from india or um, like second generation indians going up here protesting against hindutva or um, the present regime in india uh, but i'm not going to talk about that because our order is strictly non political and right. uh, so we we don't get involved in that uh, okay. my general idea is that it's 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 nothing serious and nothing really to be worried about uh, and there are many good elements in it too right okay um well moving beyond that maybe in a more general sense whether we see racism whether we see discrimination in the name of uh gender or class or even religion what is what do you think is a common ground or the common philosophy that people can understand and come to to really come together and you know remove those boundaries and those man-made walls um a philosophy of oneness but you know the human beings generally are social and it's mostly when we don't know each other that we become suspicious of each other so it's good in, in the modern world especially in a society like the united states where we can have uh, when we can get to know each other there is so much diversity in this society we grew up thinking of india as a big and diverse country which it is but it's uh, the united states is a place like new york for example is probably more diverse than any other place in the whole world so here you have an opportunity to see the other person and to speak with them and get to know them and human beings being human beings we become uh, actually uh, friendly with a- each other and the mm-hmm. more we understand each other's traditions see the way i think about it is any religion i may not like it but when i think about it closely millions of people over centuries have derived benefit and peace and and joy and strength from from those that set of beliefs so there right. must be something really good in that so and every time that i've investigated any religious tradition i have found so so much that is wonderful there and it has always enriched my own spiritual life so i'm taking a course in christian contemplative prayer it's one of the best courses that i've ever taken so beautiful a very good teacher and wonderful text and it's all of it is it simply enriching my own spiritual life right uh, and, and the same is true of buddhism I mean, islam yes right. yes yes so it's it's much better to be open whatever uh, philosophy you're taken but whatever philosophy is the philosophy of your life um it's better to have some philosophy um, and we have a sense of imperfect belonging there and be open to everything else yeah for sure i think it's beautiful being able to look at another religion or another culture and see something significant or good about them and help that fuel your belief and your faith or your 
philosophy that you abide by. I think there's some deep connection in that. Um, Correct. And what your part? And, and, and take a friendly approach to it. We had this course. Uh, have you heard of this professor, Steven Pinker? He's one of those, um, you know, like rock star professors with hundreds of people and each classroom is an auditorium and things like that. So he, he gave a course on mm-hmm. rationality uh, at Harvard this semester. And I guess those things are, are a thing of the past now, having 300 people in, a, in an auditorium. <laughs> but uh, I remember in one of the talks he was talking about um, how in conversation we make allowances for the other person. The other person may speak in gestures, may not have perfect grammar, may not complete the sentence, but we get the sense out of it because we're trying to understand. And that's common. In all conversation, when, when we, we are talking with another person, we are actually we are being silly and trying to understand. So right. normal conversation is like that. Then he says there's another kind of conversation, which is uh, a classic example would be a lawyer's contract, where uh, the person you are dealing with is, is assumed to be not friendly, who's going to try to find loopholes. Then we look at the language, we see how cumbersome and complicated language becomes when you're trying to plug every loophole and spell everything out in detail so that you won't uh, get, uh, you know, you won't be taken advantage of in future. So I was thinking when you have a conversation with religion, you can do either of these. You can take an, a sort of uh, attacking approach. I know I'm right and therefore you are wrong. I'm going to find out what's wrong with you. And then all the other problems come in, you know, trying to, have a straw man argument, find out the weaknesses rather than the strengths. And uh, it just sets up things for a quarrel. For sure. Whereas the normal way we talk with each other, we can easily do that with the religion. We can try to understand the religion from that religion perspective. The way we are trying to understand each other when we are trying to talk to each other. Similarly, when we engage another religion, let's try to understand it instead of trying to falsify I think what tends to happen is that we automatically look at someone else or someone else's culture in a critical lens. And that critical lens isn't, you know, necessarily out of curiosity or out of appreciation, but it's you're superimposing your superiority and your belief and your ego to put the other down. And it creates that superiority inferiority complex. Exactly. And that's why Vedanta uh, is, is great for me. I mean, I, I love that because it makes me very comfortable with all sorts of people mm-hmm. um, of different religions. And they may not be very comfortable, <laughs> but <laughs> to begin with, when I'm comfortable with it, after some time I see that it helps others become comfortable with you. Right. Could be people of different religions, could be atheists, could be activists, whoever they are. Right, right. Right. Um. Moving in another direction, what what do you think is the biggest issue that the current generation, whether that be Gen Z or you want to call it millennials, what is the biggest issue or the biggest struggle that they face today? And it's for them to say, I guess, yeah. uh, from my pers- for my per- from my perspective, is always one issue that you must, as soon as possible, become a spiritual seeker. That's the sign of maturity. Mm-hmm. Look at this world, try out different things. Ultimately, uh, it's about you, your, your inner spiritual growth. Right. Nothing else really matters. No matter what you are doing, who you are with, uh, what is your fight in life, 
um, how much you have succeeded or failed in your external life. It's that internal spiritual pursuit which is most urgent and as soon as possible get down to it. And I think what you're kind of pointing to at a more, you know, deeper level is what we call mental health, right? I mean, I feel like everyone's always faced some layer of that, but we've finally been able to give it a term and maybe for the better so that people can actually take it more seriously. And, um, and at the core, what you're saying is that if one really seeks a spiritual purpose and tries to find a deeper identity, then that whole fear complex or depression complex or the idea of feeling lower and not worthy or inferior wouldn't really exist if you were really comfortable with your own self and you're under your own skin. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and spirituality is something that can give you that. It mm-hmm. has been giving that to people for centuries and it can give that to us today too. I mean, we are in a uniquely privileged position. All the spiritual resources of humanity across the religions are available to us today. Uh, there are no barriers, there's inter- connectivity, all the books and the teachings are available to us today. Right. I noticed at uh, the Divinity School, in the different courses, the young people who are there at the Divinity School at Harvard, I was surprised and happy to see how many of them are actually spiritual seekers. Some of them, mm-hmm. they know it that they are spiritual seekers. Some of them, they don't know it, what they're looking for. But the academics that they're doing there is secondary. And they have come there to study religion, almost, I would say, 70% of them. Oh, Not wow. to become just academicians of religion, but you know, there's a personal quest there. And they are doing the thing, what they say is that this is my interest and I can make it my profession too. So that's why I'm getting a degree in religion. Wow. That's pretty interesting. I don't think I would have expected that. Not all of them. Some of them are there just to be like purely pursuing an intellectual quest. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really awesome because, you know, we kind of see the idea of learning for the sake of learning and learning spirituality um, or learning for a spiritual purpose for that for the sake of that purpose alone Um, and actually wanted to ask you about that as well this is um, after a long time you're wearing the hat of a student at a university um, which is Harvard in the divinity school at Harvard how has that experience been like right it's been interesting. It's been personally very enriching. You go to a very good school and something that I did not expect to do again at this stage of my life. Uh, and uh, be with all these very smart people. The young students are very smart and the professors are really good. And uh, at this, at the graduate student level, you also get the option of um, of studying what you want to study. So by now, I know what I like. And so I wanted to study that. Plus, something new, which I had not studied earlier. So I got a mix of of both. And I was privileged because most of the other kids, um, they they have to pay or the parents have to pay, I'm sure, quite a bit. Whereas my study was sponsored by Harvard itself because there there were donors who uh, gave money for this fund. And then again, the kids, uh, the young people who are studying there, they also have something to do for the future. You know, they have probably have to have get jobs and uh, PhDs right. and things like that. And so I didn't have those pressures. So I think I really enjoyed my time there. 
So in your case, it's actually learning for the sake of learning. Learning for the sake, entirely for the sake of learning and without right. much of the pressures. Well, coming to a conclusion, um, as you know, Swami, um, what we do at Roots Media is more of an experiment with our own work as content creators, as people who are seeking to create things um, for the sake of creating. And at the core of it, what we're trying to do is learn and seek a higher purpose and a higher goal in life without expecting any fruits, without expecting the clickbait, purely for the purpose of growing as human beings in the process of creating and striving to provide content that can potentially help the listener or the viewer or the reader grow as well. Um, Correct. Yeah. Correct. And and always keep your eyes on these two indicators. One is, that is it doing some good to somebody out there? That's one. And the second thing is, is it enriching my spirit in inner life? Am I sure. becoming a better person with this? Or am I just dissipating myself? Right. Right. Thank you once again, Swami, for being part of this podcast. Sure. Thank you, Keshav. <laughs> this is a pleasure speaking with you. Hope you stay healthy and safe during these difficult times. Yes, you too. Yes, you. And the Harvard has moved all of its uh, work online. So I guess next week onwards, I'll again become busy, but I'll be staying at home. <laughs> oh, right. It's spring break right now. Yeah. So it'll be yeah, virtual. Break. Yeah. Yes, it'll be virtual next week onwards. Great. Awesome. Thank you once again. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.